You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Jack McCarthy, CIO at the Judiciary for the State of New Jersey. We discuss how the state has implemented automation to enhance efficiency and effectiveness, leverage data analytics to enhance operations, and challenges state governments face around data and adopting emerging technologies. We also discuss the state's use of AI and machine learning and how that impacts state judiciary services. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmilzer. And again, we really have enjoyed hearing from many of you about the things you want us to interview and the people that we are getting some great insights on. As mentioned, you know, this uh, Gov Future podcast has been going on strong. And it's the place to go to listen to how government innovation leaders are adopting transformative technology and hear conversations about how you, our listeners, and our Gut Future members can stay ahead of the latest innovations and best practices in the government and public sector. Exactly. And if you're not familiar with the GovFuture community, GovFuture is the fastest growing community of government innovators. You can learn more at GovFuture.com and we'll link to that in the show notes. But we really do focus on the entire you know, ecosystem of government innovators, from state and local to federal and international as well. We like to have uh, you know, a variety of different folks on our podcast so we can get that full perspective of what's going on with government innovators. For today's podcast, we're excited to have with us Jack McCarthy, who is the CIO at State of New Jersey Judiciary. So welcome, Jack, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself, our listeners, and tell them a little bit about your background and what you do at the State of New Jersey Judiciary. Sure. Well, I've been the CIO for the last 12 years. Um, New Jersey is a a unique court system amongst the country in that we're a statewide judiciary. So the um, everything from a parking ticket to a Supreme Court case falls under our purview. A lot of counties around the country have a little more ownership of their judiciaries. But in New Jersey, back in 1995, the state went through a unification process and put everything under um, one entity, um, which um, from the IT perspective happens to be us. So we have uh, 700 sites around the state. We have about 15,000 users between our Superior Court and our Municipal Court and our Supreme Court. Um, we work with uh, the public, attorneys, law enforcement, um, regular members of the public. We have about 400,000 accounts set up with um, members around the state. We have uh, around 100 applications we support from everything from your family court and civil court and criminal court down to um, some smaller applications. Um, Unfortunately, like most government entities, we never seem to get rid of anything. So we have um, various flavors of technology, probably dating back to the 70s and and then all the way up through the current modern stuff. So we have a, a little bit of everything. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, both interesting, overwhelming, and some. Hey, some people really like the idea of centralization of IT. It does solve some problems, but uh, does make some other problems more difficult. And I guess, kind of from that perspective, I know one of the things that you've been uh, very, uh, you know, adopter, early adopter, and strong adopter of is automation. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how automation has helped with the efficiency and the effectiveness of many of your your IT processes and perhaps some of the other processes that it may not be IT centric. Yeah, sure. We have um, one of the benefits of uh, centralization is we have all the data, so we're able to manipulate and move things around in a way that um, that others aren't. We we um, have been very fortunate to have a, a few really interesting projects. Um, one is our bell reform projects that was started back a few years ago. And what it does is allows decision makers to make decisions almost immediately um, when something occurs. So historically, if you were arrested, um, you might be brought down to the police station. Um, something was filled out on paperwork. Um, somebody might, like a sheriff's officer, might drive around to every town in the county pick that up and, you know, eventually it would get to the prosecutor's office and maybe a few weeks, few days, few weeks from then, somebody would look at that information and decide this individual probably doesn't need to be in jail. Um, what we've done is take that whole process down to a few seconds. So upon an arrest, um, we're sharing data with um, law enforcement, the federal system, and and making recommendations to them based on what we see. So we're using a, a master data management tool um, to to grab all that information, score it, and present it back to the user, um, letting law enforcement know this individual should be on a summons and should be able to go home tonight, or this individual needs to be on a warrant and should be sitting in a, in a jail um, to have further review by a judge. We're letting the judge and, and the um, pretrial services staff know everything we know about the individual, which um, historically, we wouldn't do if we might have a case in our family system and a case in our criminal system, and the two judges didn't know about each other, didn't know what was occurring in those um, instances. We've had um, one horrific instance years ago, which was an individual um, was was released um, during a minor um, court event for for a criminal process. Uh, only to find out that as we dug into their systems and and saw what was going on, um, this individual was torturing and really doing some nasty things to the lady. Um, however, the decision makers didn't know that because that information was in another system. So by, by breaking down those barriers and looking across the system, we're able to give um, the judge that information within seconds, give the prosecutor, the public defender. We try to be very transparent with their systems and provide them provide everybody with the same information, um, which, which really assists us in, um, at the at the time we were able to lower our pretrial jail population by almost 50%. So across the state, you know, roughly 10,000 people were in jail on a given day, pretrial and now, you know, then it was around 5,000. Obviously COVID and shutting down the courts for a few years didn't help that process. So some numbers have been moved around but had we not done that prior to um, COVID and, and everything that occurred with that, I can only imagine how higher jail populations might have gone. Um, you know, we have uh, be become a decision-based organization. So um, our Supreme Court, when they look at um, how might we modify 
various algorithms or various recommendations that these systems are providing, um, our, our Supreme Court wants to see the data now. They they don't want to, you know, they the information comes from politicians and other members of law enforcement and the public, and they might say, well, there's a million gun charges going out. You guys are letting everybody out. Well, when we dig into the data, we don't see that. So the Supreme Court has... Um, has started leveraging more and more data every single decision they make, which obviously uh, creates a lot of um, need within our group. Um, we've spent the last few years trying to trying to build out the data warehouses and and create the plumbing that we know is going to be needed in the future while trying to react to their existing questions. Um, so it's a um, it, it's a full time job. Let's just. <laughs> Yeah, I always love to hear real world examples, right? You know, we talk about automation, the power of automation and what it can do to help speed up things. And when you are giving these examples, you know, these are human lives that you're talking about, right? And that it has an incredible impact. We actually had an interview with somebody else from the courts in Maricopa County. And he talked about, you know, a lot of people say data and data and they talk about this and he goes, but at the end of the day, like that data is a human being and you need to think about how this is impacting their lives. So if they can get to the, you know, their um, court room easier because you've helped provide that information or they understand the process better or they're able to get out of jail quicker or, you know, all of these things have an actual real life impact on somebody. And that's why I, you know, always like to think about that and come back to that because we talk sometimes about, you know, obscure things, but really at the end of the day, it's, you're having a tremendous impact. And so how can automation play a part into that? Specifically also, um, how can you share with us some examples of how your team leverages data analytics to enhance operations within the New Jersey judiciary? So we have a few, and and I had spoke on a um, podcast I think a couple of years ago or a webinar about um, RPA, and um, we've we've done a lot of um, really tremendous work over there. And a, a very simple one is when the when the court sends out a notification on something, um, it might go out certified mail, and which you have to sign from the um, the postman and says, "Yeah, I received this." Um, there's a green card attached to that, and those green cards eventually go back to the sender. And um, when the individual doesn't appear in court, um, we want to know, did they receive the, the judge wants to know before I issue a warrant on this individual or reschedule this case, did they get that original green card? So working with the post office, we have a lot of solutions where they send us the images back. Well, we were able to use an RPA solution to go in and read all those green cards and look for certain characteristics on them as they were getting filed into the various case jackets. Um, what we found was it was a person's full-time job. They did this eight hours a day, four days a week, uh, five days a week, and it was um, all they were able to accomplish. But using an RPA solution, we were able to take that down to five minutes. So they they turn on a robot. Um, all of our robots have very unique names, um, mainly after Marvel superheroes. And we are able to turn on a robot, and for five minutes, it runs through the whole list, does what it's supposed to do. Um, assuming it doesn't see any errors, it puts everything where it belongs. 
if it can't recognize something or it's not sure, it dumps it into the, we call it the human file, and then the human being goes in and handles the more advanced task. Um, we've had a lot of success with RPA solutions doing very small things like that, but they really have impact where um, we're not a unique entity around the world either in, in uh, whether it's government or the private sector. Um, everybody has huge vacancies. We're, we're all seeing 10 to 15% vacancies on your staff. So when you can go into a office that maybe only has five or six people and you can say, here's a solution I can provide you, that's going to free up one of your people to go to the counter and deal with the public on customer service, et cetera. Um, that has huge benefits. Um, in New Jersey, one of the um, few things we've done recently is uh, marijuana decriminalization. So we had to go back using some of the technology we had in the bail reform system and sweep through our systems and find all of the uh, marijuana cases of a certain threshold and um, provide lists to prosecutors and, and the court to look at and review. Um, but when it came down to it, we had to um, go through and first um, dismiss all those cases and then eventually expunge them and remove them from the system. Um, what we have found is it takes an awful lot of time to build systems and build processes. It takes an even longer amount of time for some reason to dismiss cases and expunge them. Um, it's just a, a very onerous computer task. What, we're, what we found was a human being can do a case, you know, maybe every five minutes and they could knock through. Unfortunately, we were dealing with four or 500,000 cases. So people doing that was going to take a lot of time. But using the same RPA tools, we were able to, in effect, mimic what the human being did and rather than program it, just let those tools go through and, and zip through all those cases one night, knocked out all the cases in eight hours. And the next day, wow, it was done. The value to the public is we met the requirements of the legislation and we're able to do it um, in, in a few short weeks versus we, we estimated the programming time would have taken us four to five months. And we were able to turn this on in about three weeks and then and get it running and what, what I like about these tools and other automation um, uh, tools that we've used is it allows us to remove IT as the bottleneck on policy decisions. If the Supreme Court or our administrative director wants to accomplish something, we can usually accomplish it fairly quickly using one of a various set of tools um, and get IT out of the way where they won't have to go back and say, well, we'd love to do this, but it's going to take us two or three years. What we've seen is we can get really creative using a lot of these um, tools based on manipulating data and moving it around. Because again, I have all the data in the systems and we're able to, to meet their requirements fairly quickly as they work through the, the larger policy issues. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, I was just thinking, I mean, just that one case with the expungement and going in and doing all the uh, uh, stuff with the criminalization that like that justified the ROI for for the for the automation investment. And you now still have those tools, which is great. You still have those bots that can do more things. We tell people all the time that uh, we're in a good position now with a lot of these tools and technology to really squeeze a lot of efficiency 
out of systems. We say it's people are concerned about you know job loss and are concerned about bots taking away jobs. And we tell people that really we want to take the robot out of the human. It's that the human is doing things. We're doing things like typing into systems, extracting. That's not a very good use of our own wetware, you know, between our ears. And so if the machine can save us time, then it's not about the job going away. It's about making the most of what we are doing. Because we say there's a difference between job and work, you know. So uh, on that note, you know, obviously what's getting a lot of people's attention these days uh, beyond automation is the more intelligent stuff. AI is everywhere, uh, whether you're looking at sort of the more traditional forms of AI, if I can even save that now with uh, recognition and conversation and now the new emerging forms of generative AI. So in what ways are you looking at or using AI, machine learning, any of those forms uh, to apply to enhance many of the things that you're doing and uh, for the for the jobs that, that you're working on? Um, so we're obviously we I just got back from uh, the Gartner conference last week, which was Gen AI, Gen AI, Gen AI. I think every single session I attended um, had that. And and what I keep reminding people is this has been around for a few years, but it's really only been around for a year. Once they you know uh, launched it last fall, probably right around now, um, is when it really exploded and got on everybody's radar. Um, it's basically at the point right now where it's a, a small toddler that just stood up and took its first step. And at some point, that kid is going to be running around the room, banging into walls, hitting his head on the coffee table and doing all the things toddlers do. And then a few weeks later, it's it's um, going to be you know able to run between rooms and keep moving. And then you never stop them until they're you know, move out of the house eventually 20 years from then, or in some cases they come back, which is happening to us right now. Um, so what we've been doing from an IT perspective is IT perspective is learning everything we can about it. Um, fortunately, we have a fairly um, robust application development process and life cycle. And, and I keep telling people, um, we know how to secure these things. We know how to um, use them. We know how to leverage them in our applications. Um, it seems like a lot of people want to recreate the wheel every time a new technology comes out. We don't have to do that. We we know that we wouldn't want to turn OpenAI on our mainframe and just let it run its course and see what it finds. Um, someday I'd love to do that. I'd love to take the 40 to 50 years worth of data I have on the mainframe and have it um, run through and look for things like biases and and efficiencies in the code and be able to pull out our business rules and and have them um ha, you know be able to build new applications with those business rules um but we're not there yet you know we we don't trust what it's doing so what we've tried to do is is look at the tool and say okay where are things that we're we're not as concerned about um one is um there's something called a summary judgment that our civil area has to work with. And it's a 50-page document that attorneys send in. And we have um, legal clerks that look at it and summarize it down to a couple paragraphs within a page. Um, what we have found is obviously um, OpenAI is really good at that. So you can feed that information into a chat GBT and within a few seconds to minutes, you can um, spit something out that might take, again, if a human being's taking you know, doing three of these a week, um, we can do one every five minutes and and take all the work those people are doing and 
and provide them that summary. Um, we've all heard about the cases that are out there where it has uh, hallucinations and it gives you legal references that actually don't exist and, and some other things. And my response is, um, I always review my work. If I farm something out to somebody before I send it to my boss, I read it and I review it and I make sure it's correct. Um, I would hope that anybody that's using one of these tools would do the same thing. Yes, it's doing a great job of summarizing it. Um, we're, we're, we're buying commercial versions of this, so it should be a little bit better than the public models, but you still have to make sure it's doing what, you're, what it, you think it's doing. Um, we're very fortunate, and I have a very technical progressive chief justice and administrative director and so they've now formed a bunch of AI committees and we're having discussions just like this at all the subcommittee meetings, um, first talking about what the potential is and then obviously what the risks and pitfalls are. So um, from an IT perspective, I've tasked my staff with making sure they understand how this stuff works. And the way they do that is by creating projects, working with our security department, our business analyst groups, and making sure we really understand um, things like data leakage and security and governance around these things before we get too far along. Um, but we're, we're, um, we're, we're playing with the tools, um, you know, things like machine learning. We want to um, obviously start looking at our mainframe and, and finding all the, the um, benefits that we'll see over there. But from the AI perspective, obviously, we're, we're stepping in cautiously because we really don't know what this is going to be. Um, a year or two from now, if you, you know, if you ever heard about the the second half of the chessboard, we're we're only two or three boxes into the second half of the chessboard, and next year it's going to double and then double and then double. So, um, I, I think the power of Gen AI is going to be huge for those individuals that know how to use it. Um, I don't think it's going to take over the world and replace jobs. I think somebody's going to learn how to work with it and take over the world and learn how. To these jobs. Yeah, you know, I like I like how you brought up that you should be checking your work. We always say keep a human in the loop, right? We don't just we we never say it's never set it and forget it. You don't just put it out there, don't double check it. So you should be doing that when it comes to any technology. I think sometimes where people get caught up in this is that if they are so busy and they don't have time to do things, it isn't like automation where it's something that you're going to program. It's going to be programmed to do over and over again. It just can do it a whole lot faster than a human can. And the thing that's nice about automation is it uh, can help with errors, right? Because it's programmed to do the same thing. So unlike a human, it doesn't fat finger. Um, where maybe you don't need to be checking that as much. AI is very different and you do need to keep a human in the loop. And when we think about artificial intelligence, we always like to think about it in the context of augmented intelligence, which is what you said. So you're not looking to replace the human. You're just looking to have the human do their job better. So how can you use this as a tool to enhance what they're doing? We love to think about it that way. That's really what's been so incredibly powerful about generative AI. And you're right. We are just at the beginning stages. Where will it go? Um, you know, I think everybody's anticipating and excited about that. But with any new technology, there can be, you know, some fears and concerns and challenges. So what are some challenges that you're seeing, especially at that state government level, that you face around both data as well as adopting these emerging technologies? 
I'm sure. So, the, you know, I can think of two. And as I'm probably talking, I'll come up with a couple more. But um, the first is um, we have a administrative code that says um, we have the public's trust and confidence. Um, they provide us their data. Um, in some cases, at the worst time of their lives, you can imagine somebody going through a divorce, a lawsuit, um, a, a criminal trial, and they're providing us all this information so that they can seek justice with us. And so we have a overwhelming um, requirement to make sure that data is kept private, secure, that we're um, only using the data for, for the um, reasons that we need to, and we're not doing things like selling it to the public for you know um, some creditor to get access to or things like that, um, where it's confidential. Where it's public, um, we, we actually have requirements to provide um, some of our public data um, out to individuals that use it. Um, so that that's the first is I, I was our um, CISO probably about 15 to 18 years ago. Um, and um, my my boss um, came in during that that time and he always told about talked about a culture of security. And so ever since then, each job I've taken and each individual I've hired, we focus on that culture of security because I, I, I used to do security awareness training and um, I would talk about individual gives you their social security or their credit card number. And um, we used to trick people into giving them to us. So we would call and do phishing, you know, um, scams on individuals and, and I would record it and get the information. And then we would um, make an anonymous show it at the class. And I'd say, what did the person do long, wrong? And what we found that they were doing wrong is they weren't treating it like it was their credit card number or their social security number. It was just something on a piece of paper. So first thing we always want to do is, is make sure that we're doing whatever we can to, to keep our, our stuff secure. Um, the, the next challenge that I think we have when, when we get into these things is, um, as you mentioned, keeping the human in the loop. Um, when we went into our bail reform, as I was talking about a couple minutes ago, um, my boss, uh, Judge Colleen Grant, set up a whole bunch of committees talking about building the processes around how we were going to run this thing, as well as um, you know the various um, new divisions we were setting up. And IT was in every single one of those meetings because we were moving at such a fast pace. We had to build things often based on the decisions that were going on in those meetings and couldn't wait till the next day to find out what they decided. I likened it to driving down a highway at 60 miles an hour and trying to paint the lines as we were going. That's that's how fast we were moving. Um, but one of the things that I heard in sitting in those meetings was we always wanted to make sure um, our system was providing recommendations and wasn't providing decisions. Um, that the you know judge would have all the information, work with the prosecutor and the defense attorney, and and come up with that decision based on court rules, legal legal knowledge, um, et cetera. That we were one piece of that puzzle, and it always stuck with me of making sure that you know if I was ever on the other side of the fence for something, whether it were a criminal, civil, a family trial, um, that I didn't want some computer somewhere making a decision. I wanted to make sure that the the human being was making the decision. Um, obviously, we've gotten very good at at helping make those decisions. Our our algorithms are are probably followed, 
you know, 70 to 80% of the time um, based on the information we're giving. And if they're moving around, it's, it's usually based on one, you know, maybe a no contact criteria that wasn't included in something. Um, so we see the the value and the benefits of it. And, and it just comes from the, you know, application cycle of plan, build, run. If you get the information, you monitor it, you find out what's going good, what's going bad, and you add those things and, and make them a little better. Um, but we do want to make sure the human's in there. Now, now the one thing in AI that um, I found fascinating is about a month ago, I was at a conference in Phoenix and was fortunate enough to get in one of the Waymo self-driving cars. Um, and in, in talking to a lot, it was a tech conference, a lot of individuals were, were doing exactly what I was doing is jump in a Waymo and take it to dinner. Um, there's no human being driving in them anymore. They're driving around the town of Phoenix and and they're able to, they have some parameters. They can't go to the airport. They can't go on the highway, but they can move within the town itself. And about eight or nine months ago, they stopped having the person there. So for you know a couple of years, they had, you'd order the car and the person would sit there and talk to you. And they were there just in case to hit the brake or the hit steering wheel. Well, about eight or nine months ago, the data showed them they didn't need that anymore. And so they've actually removed that that person from the car. Um, we thought it was the most fascinating thing we'd ever seen driving around a city without having to, you know, have a driver in the car. But but I think it, it shows you what's coming is that at some point we're going to find things like that, that people are a little bit more willing to do. I, I see self-driving trucks being something like the the um you know kansas and iowa and the big long stretches where you're driving through the highway and there's corn on either side we'll let the self-driving car take that when we get closer to the city maybe it stops and picks up a human being and to allow it to finish and drive into the city um those are the you know the things that i can see coming um pretty quickly i think and then when we look at how can we take that into, into the government side? Um, all the decisioning that we've been talking about, if it gets stuck right 100% of the time, we're going to find people that are willing to say, okay, let's let the computer do this one and we'll move on to the next one. We're not there yet, but you know, while we say we always want to keep the human in the loop, I think there's going to be some humans um, involved in testing, but eventually the, that loop may move to a different project. Yeah, well, we definitely are keeping an eye on it. <laughs> uh, we spend a lot of our time looking at where AI is going, and where AI is heading, and of course, not only how governments are adopting it, but of course, more broadly. But uh, we are—I think everybody is keeping an eye on on this. We are, we all live in the same world, so it's kind of hard not to notice how things are changing. So, uh, you know, I think you know. On that note, you know, really, the question has to do with some of the uniqueness. So we talked about some of the challenges that state governments face, you know, some, maybe some of the unique challenges, but maybe there are some unique advantages. You know, what are some of the insights you have maybe that is perhaps unique and different about say a state agency or state IT organization, state government may, that may not be the same perhaps in federal space or perhaps even in the local space. Um, you know, and, and you already mentioned at the very beginning here, how just in general, how the New Jersey court system is unique, which is in itself very different. But may, maybe there's some other insights that you can uh, share with our, our audience. Yeah, so I think there's um, there's two. The first is um, we're very fortunate that we have um, 
we have data. So as I mentioned, we have systems back to the 1970s. Well, some of these systems um, are going to, you know, have data. And so we we're, we have the data to make our, our um, we have the data to make our, our uh, life a lot easier in the future. We can, you know, we can learn from history and our applications and all that data kind of show you our history. So we, we can, you know, we can advance from it. We can also make sure we don't make the same mistakes we made back in the day. Um, I think the second thing is um, th there's a concept called a civic moment when everybody gets together from the Democrats, the Republicans, the governor, the legislature, the judiciary, and try to accomplish something. Um, whether it's, you know, back in the 60s when they decided we're going to the moon to all the way up to um, you know some of the things that that have occurred recently with some of the civil rights reforms that are going on. Um, you don't get that in other areas when when we look at things and decide they aren't. Um, it's not something that's. Um, we don't have to look at a bottom line. We don't have to see how much money we're going to make off of something. It's just the right thing to do, and I think government has that benefit where there are times when the, the right leaders get in place and just decide this is the right thing to do. Um, obviously, we, we want to make sure we do it in, in a cost-effective manner, but we're just going to do it. We're going to get it done. And, um, and, and we've seen a lot of benefits from that um, in, in New Jersey, where um, our, our government always doesn't agree with each other, but when they do, um, these huge advances come in and we're able to, um, to react to them and, and, uh, and hopefully putting lasting effects for the future that were, you know, a lot of the technology we, we used from the bail reform five or six years ago, we've used 10 to 15 times in other projects because, you know, you buy that hammer once, you don't pay for it every time you swing it. Yeah, it's always, you know, great to hear those stories and how you can reuse that technology and repurpose it and, you know, continue to get long-term benefits from it. This has been such an incredible discussion. And we always like to wrap up our podcast interviews with asking the same question because all of our guests are able to bring their unique experiences and, you know, insights from the different roles and industries and sectors that they're in, especially if it's state or local versus federal government. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? So I hope to see a lot of it. Um, I, one of the things I didn't say when I started about the 34 years of experience I have is that's coming to an end in February. So I'm actually retiring February 1st. Um, so I hope to be on the other side using all this great technology that the, the government's um, going to be putting out. Um, what, what, I, what I think the... Um, advantages we're going to see from from um, some of these technologies and one I'll, I'll speak about really quickly is I've been paying attention a, a lot to something called process AI where you'll be able to in effect take um, the AI and turn it loose on your applications and identify um, efficiencies in code so we're already hearing that computer programmers might see a two to three hundred percent um, speed efficiency based on using this. You can take a junior developer and have them use these tools and spit something out for a code review much quicker than you can have um, them doing otherwise. I, I think that's going to be hugely beneficial and we're going to see a lot of great things from that. 
But looking back at, you know, in government, we have a lot of these old applications that just work. And it's very difficult to get people to spend money on replacing something that works when historically, you know, we've been trying to move into more modern and new areas. Um, and it would be great if we could take something like this process AI and have it run through our COBOL programs on the mainframe, spit out all the business rules, as well as make some recommendations on some new code. And you could take what might be a five-year you know, rewrite project down to a few months. Um, I think that's coming, and I don't think it's going to be that long before we see it. So I, I think the um, the, the advantages coming to the IT application development area are going to be huge. And um, it's something that we, you know, hopefully will all benefit from greatly. Absolutely. I think uh, that's the interesting thing about a lot of these technologies in general is that we always look for the shiny thing. We were talking about autonomous vehicles. We were talking about generative AI. We we're talking about many other things, but most of what we're doing are these more mundane things. <laughs> you talk about it's interesting. The future is uh, exciting as process AI and autonomous business processes and all that sort of stuff. And for the, the most average person, they're probably not thinking about that, but I don't think they realize how impactful in general these technologies really are to their everyday lives, especially when they're interacting and interfacing with a government agency, such as a court system. They might be, well, they may not be thinking about it at the time, but <laughs> but they will be impacted by automation, by intelligence systems, by data, by analytics, by all the stuff we're talking about. And I think that's kind of a really nice little wrap up here, because at the end of the day, that's really what all this technology is for. Technology is a tool and technology is there to help us, you know, improve the quality of our lives make everything more effective and efficient and give people a better value for everything that they're doing. So I think this has been fantastic insight. So thank you, Jack, so much for- thank you. In... Yes, go for it. Yeah. I said, thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and being part of our future podcast, we really appreciate it, you being here and sharing your insights with our community. Yeah, this was such a wonderful discussion. So thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, we've got great resources if you're looking to get additional insights and details on the range of technology that we discussed in this podcast today and also on additional topics. So make sure to go to govfuture.com slash resources to check out all of our resources, including books and courses, checklists, webinars, explainer videos, and more. It's tailored just for your GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. If you haven't done so already, consider becoming a GovFuture member so that you can take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with government agencies and all levels of government, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. To learn more and to sign up, go to govfuture.com join. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please make sure to reach out to us and let us know what episodes you've enjoyed. And if you have potential guests that you'd like to have on, please reach out and also make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. We've got great resources if you're looking to get more insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well. Check out our resources, books, courses, 
checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored for our GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.